to the book of 1 Thessalonians, chapter 2. We're going to be reading verses 13 to 16. This is the word of the Lord. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets, and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they may be saved." so as always to fill up the measure of their sins. But wrath has come upon them at last. This is the word of the Lord. That was a great reading, wasn't it? <laughs> uh, that's the second time I've done that. <laughs> Sorry. Um, my name's Sam, if we haven't met, and um, I'm one of the pastors here. So welcome if you're visiting. Um, it's my privilege to get to preach from those few verses this morning. Let me pray, and then we'll, we'll get into it. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we are coming now before your word, and, and truly coming under your word. And so pray now for your Spirit's help that for all of us in this room, that whatever's true that gets said now, we would hear it not as the words of men, but as it truly is the Word of God, that we would encounter you through your Word. It's our greatest need, and we are helpless to accomplish it without your Spirit. And so we pray for that now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's going to be helpful for us as we go through the book of 1 Thessalonians to always kind of have in the back of our minds and kind of be clear on what, what that kind of particular journey that Paul had and that time that he had in Thessalonica was like. It's in Acts chapter 17. And let me read from Acts 17 verse 2. It says this, And when Paul went in, so to Thessalonica, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead and saying, quotation, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. So the Apostle Paul is fundamentally, he was a preacher. Right? That's, that was his like, sole task. He went from city to city to city, there is no mention of him doing much else. You don't hear about him planting any trees. He doesn't um, begin, like he doesn't begin any non-for-profits. He doesn't do much else except I'm coming to the city and I'm going to do this thing. And that main thing is I'm just going to preach. Paul was a preacher and what he preached was the Bible. It just said that, didn't it? He said he went, to the, to, went to, into the synagogue for three Sabbaths and he opened up the Scriptures and what he wanted to do was prove to them from the Old Testament that the Christ, the promised Messiah, was someone who was going to have to die and rise again. And so he would prove that from the Scriptures and then he might say, now let me tell you about Jesus. He is that one who has died and who did rise again and has now ascended back to the Father. So he did that for three Sabbaths. And it says in Acts 17 that people began to believe. People began to get saved. And that's great for them, but it upset a lot of people in Thessalonica. And so a mob kind of gets together and, and they kind of, you know, how a mob can be. It kind of gets, gets excited and they're looking for Paul and they're looking for Silas, but they can't find Paul and Silas. So they find the next best thing and that's the people who are housing Paul and Silas. And they grab Jason and some of his friends and say, you know, like guilt by association. Well, let's grab them at least and let's get them in front of the courts. And so they bring them in front of the courts and they say to them, hey, these guys are receiving those people who come in 
in here, these people who are turning the world upside down, and they say this in Acts 17, 7, they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying there is another king, Jesus. Well, once that is over, Jason and, his, and, and, his, and the brothers get, go, they, kind of, they leave that situation and they realize we've, we're going to have to get Paul and Silas out of here. And so by night, they sneak them out. And so just in a moment like that, what was kind of like a, a thriving ministry, a burgeoning ministry in Thessalonica, it's done. He's gone. They were there, fruit, and then they've gone, leaving behind what? like brand new Christians, a church that was yet to have laid like a firm foundation and had set up. They were leaving behind them in persecution, which had just begun, their brothers and sisters. And we know that Paul, though he was there for a brief time, like loved them. They were precious to Paul. We saw that last week. 1 Thessalonians 2 verse 8 said, Paul says this, so being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. You're like that, that, that happened quickly. And so you can imagine Paul's anxiety over them as he, as he gets kind of taken away from them overnight. Oh, how will they go? Will there be a church in Thessalonica in a few weeks? How bad is this persecution going to get? Will they be able to remain faithful to the Lord whilst the pressure seems to have just kind of whipped up into a frenzy suddenly? What's going to happen to these precious brothers and sisters? Well, eventually, a bit later, he's in Corinth and he sends Timothy to go and see how they're going. Timothy can get in there because he wasn't with them in the, at the time and so he can get in there unnoticed and, and find out how the church is going back in Thessalonica. So Timothy goes there and he, he probably hangs out and meets them and, 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 and finds out how they're going. He comes back to Paul and you can imagine it, can't you? Paul's like, you know, Timothy's back. You know. So, is anyone there? Is there a church at all? And Timothy looks at him, I imagine, smiling and goes... It's flourishing. They're going so well. Like, it is so encouraging to see the fruit that God is doing in that church. They are persecuted, but they are remaining faithful. And actually, they miss you. And they're worried for you. And so Paul thinks, I'm going to have to write them a letter. And so, that's what he does. And this is the letter that we're in. It's been very positive so far, hasn't it? Well, because the message mainly is positive. And, and our passage this morning is also it's pretty positive, um, at least for the, the church in Thessalonica. Um, I was thinking about this as I was preparing, because we've been, on Thursday nights, we've been in the book of Galatians, all right? And, and that's just, that's a different letter. I don't know if you've read Galatians, and then if you've read 1 Thessalonians, and it, it's, it's different. Let me, let me read a little bit of it and see if you can tell the difference, okay? So I'm going to read this, the, the very first just after the greeting, the first words that Paul gives to the Thessalonians, and then I'm going to read the first words that he gives to the Galatians. See if you can spot the difference. Okay, first words to the Thessalonians after the greeting is, we give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that He has chosen you. All right, the Galatians, after the greeting. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, not that there is another one. Can you tell the difference? It's different, isn't it? Like I, I actually, I imagine a, you know, a member of the church in, in, um, in Galatia and, you know, they've gotten this letter and it's like, whew, okay. But then one day they find another letter from Paul. Oh, oh, he sent another one to the Thessalonians. I wonder what that one's like. And they're just reading it and, you know, just being like, that is not what he sent to us, you know. <laughs> this is different. You know, they might have like counseled, the, the, you know, consoled themselves with the, the idea that I'm sure he writes like this to everyone. <laughs> no, he doesn't actually. That was just for you. And what, what, why? Why the difference? Because the Thessalonians are standing firm on the gospel and the Galatians were abandoning it. And so our passage is just more thanksgiving from Paul to God for them. 
And the reason I think that just noticing what Paul thanks God for about a church is so instructive for us is not just to see the words and go, isn't that nice? Isn't it good that they're doing well? But actually underneath that, we are ourselves as a church being instructed by what we should be thankful for. What should we look out for in our church Well, we want that to be instructed by God's Word. And so the principle kind of is we celebrate the things we value the most, right? We celebrate most the things we value the most. So if a parent has a child, you know, and parents always have childs, but if a parent says to that that child, mainly the thing they praise them for and thank them for is their achievements, that they're good at academics, they're a sporting pro, and that's the main thing that comes out of their mouths, what's that telling the child? Well, that's what you value. You don't mention my character. Potentially, you don't mention my spiritual walk, my growth in maturity. No, you care about these things. Okay, well, what you celebrate is what you value. It can be the same thing in the church, right? So pastors could celebrate things in the church that actually sit on the most superficial level while Paul thinks about a church and he thanks them for what? Deep things. You know, we could praise God for superficial things, but what about maturity in Christ? What about holiness? What about our growth in the knowledge of God and good doctrine and the holiness of our lives? So we want the Bible to shape what we give thanks for. And that's what we kind of get in these letters when we see Paul thanking the church. The alternative, of course, is that we kind of, we have the things that we like, And so we come to church looking for those things that I like. And I'll give thanks if those things are in the church. And I'll complain if those things aren't in the church. But it just might be that those are not the things that we actually should care about most. And actually to be informed by the Bible, which will actually probably make our desires and our considerations for what we want to give thanks much deeper and much richer. And so we got three things, I think, from this passage to look for and to give thanks for in the church. First, giving thanks to God for how the Word of God is being received. Second, giving thanks to God for how the Word of God is at work. And third, giving thanks to God for how well the church is suffering. So let's get into the passage first of all. Giving thanks to God for how the Word of God is being received. So that's verse 13. Follow along. And we also thank God constantly for this. That when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God. Now, just even reading that out, it might sound familiar because I just read the greeting at the very beginning, chapter 1, verse 2, where Paul wrote this, We give thanks to God always for all of you constantly mentioning you in our prayers. You see, and he just said then, and we also thank God constantly for this. And you might think, oh, okay, like something, something new's come to Paul's mind. He's like, oh, I should think, I actually always thank God for this as well as the things I mentioned earlier. Except you look back earlier at some of the things that he mentions that he's thankful for. Like have a look at verse 5, chapter 1, verse 5. And it says, he's thanking God because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. What's he thanking God for? He's thanking God for how they received the Word of God, that it came and it was powerful, like the Holy Spirit moved through the Word that was being preached and brought conviction. What's he thanking God for now, near the end of chapter 2? Well, it's this, that when you received the Word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the Word of men, but as what it really is, the Word of God. So he, I think he's right. He really does thank God constantly for this because he's literally, he's thanking God constantly for this in the letter, right? It's like chapter one and chapter two, which tells us something, doesn't it? About the central importance about how the word of God is received in the church. And if you think about it, maybe there's not much more important than that at all in a church. That maybe the, the fundamental question for any church is, how is the Word of God being received? 
Is it being received as the words of men or is it being received as the words of God? Could there be anything more important than that? Remember, Paul was a preacher. So he comes to Thessalonica and he just wants to preach. The fundamental question about whether there will be a church in Thessalonica at all is the question, are they going to receive this word of God? How are they going to receive it? And then we know that preaching does not just begin a church, but it's designed by God through the, through the New Testament and throughout the Old Testament, that it continues to shape the people of God and sanctify them. So remember Paul's words to his son in the faith, Timothy. You know, this is like some of his final words that he'll ever write before he dies. And Paul writes this. He says to Timothy, to, to Timothy 4 verse 1, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing and his kingdom. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and, it will, and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. So the, the, the beating heart of pastoral ministry from pastors in churches is the preaching, the teaching, the declaration, the proclamation of God's Word. Which means the main question then if that's the main ministry of the pastors, the main question in the congregation is how is that word being received? Well, how did the Thessalonians receive it? Well, Paul tells us what they didn't do and what they did do, right? They accepted it not as the words of men, but as what it really is, the words of God. Now, of course, in one sense, it was the words of men, right? They were the ones talking. Paul just said, which you heard from us. You know, so like in one sense, it was them that were talking, right? Their mouths were moving. The sounds of those words were coming out of their mouths. So they were the words of men in that sense. But they said they're, they're actually far more than that. That when we hear Paul inviting us, and the words are coming out of his mouth, and he's saying, be reconciled to God. Be forgiven. Come to Jesus. The Thessalonians heard that and, were like, and, and they realized God is inviting us. God is saying, be reconciled. Be forgiven. Come to Jesus. In 1 Corinthians 5.20, uh, Paul writes this. He says, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Do you see that? So you have what God's doing and what they're doing. God is making appeals through us. We are imploring you, be reconciled to God. So we, we have those words, we say those words, but behind those words, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't end there. It's not just words of men. God's making appeals well, this becomes, I think, like a pretty helpful little theology of preaching, doesn't it? That the preacher is not merely someone who is, who is sharing a message about God. The preacher is someone who is sharing a message from God to the people. Um, it is why, and this kind of grounds a lot of what we, you know, even as a church and, and our preaching, we, we really do try to stick very close to this book, you know, to the Bible. Say what it's saying. I um, think that's good for the congregation. You know, you don't want to have heard a sermon and, and feel like, man, I'm really receiving that sermon, you know, and then walking away going, was that the words of men or the words of God? Okay, hmm. I'm unsure, actually. There wasn't actually a lot of God's word in it. It's good for the preacher to stick to the Bible because at least then they have something to say, you know. It'd be hard to come up with something every week. On what grounds would you ever stand up here and think that you have any confidence to say anything 
when it comes to the matters of eternity. The things of the soul. The things of God. You wouldn't dare. So it's very helpful. It's very helpful to think, well, we'll just preach God's word. We don't have to worry about coming up with much. There it is. Here's God's word. Right? It's a much safer place. Even if uh, after a sermon, it's, and it's kind of, things go well, Lord willing, you know, and it's received well, and people are, you know, thankful for that. Well, it's hard to get puffed up when you didn't come up with any of it. It was just like, well, it's a good passage, isn't it? And then, and then, but then it could go bad, and people might go, I did not like that, and I did not like what you said there, and I did not like what you said there, and I disagree with all of that. Well, it's like, okay, well, as long as it's been this book, don't shoot the messenger. The problem's not here. In our passage, there are two key words which describe their response to the preaching. And it says this, they received it and accepted it. They received it. Now, that's actually a technical word um, in, in the Greek that, that, that relates to the passing on of tradition. Now, that's a wonderful thought. Actually, not all tra- tradition can have like a, it'll kind of be like a dirty word. Oh, no, we don't like that. No, the passing on of correct doctrine and correct traditions of the church that the church has believed throughout all of the centuries is actually a very wonderful and very healthy thing. So they received it and they accepted it. Now, that word is a wonderful word and that means welcomed it. It's actually the same kind of word that you would use when you welcome a guest into your home. One commentator called it a hospitality word. I love that. I love that. We showed hospitality to the Word of God here. That the Word of God was very welcome and made itself at home here. We said, come on in. And Paul says, I constantly thank God for this, that the Word of God is welcome in your church. I, um, I thank God for the same thing here, that God's Word is welcome here. And, and that's my sense. And it's a wonderful privilege to get to preach here because the sense that that all of us have is that you are saying just preach the word you know <laughs> i don't know what all your thoughts you got but just preach the word that's what we want right all of it actually all of it don't miss out bits we want everything that it has to say because we need a whole bible to make a whole christian and so i think you know last year that was the sense right okay you're going to spend most of the year in john okay you can do that in the last half of john oh you're going to touch on Money and possessions. Okay, that might sting, but go for it. Spend a while there and let's go. Let's see what God's word has to say about our money and possessions. Oh, Song of Solomon. Okay, well, interesting choice. But go for it. We need to know and we need to be shaped by what God's word says on even those things. I think, tragically, that's not always the case in the modern church. And tragically, it's not the case in some whole denominations. That the, the word of God has not been welcomed. It's not welcome there anymore. Worldliness has been shown great hospitality. Pragmatism has been made to feel very much at home. Entertainment has been welcomed in and shown great hospitality. Preaching has become far more actually about the words of men than the word of God. And so that's the first point. And isn't it so essential when we think about the church? Paul gives thanks for the way the word of God was being welcomed and received by the church. Thank God for the same here. Second point. Giving thanks to God now for how the word of God is at work. So that's just that little phrase at the end of verse 13, which adds there. It says, which is at work in you believers. So he's not just thankful for how they kind of received God's word, but he's thankful for the way that that God's word, then it flows on from the way we receive it, that it gets to work in us, that the the word of God is not a dead thing, that it's it's actually a living thing. And um, Jason... He prayed just before. What did he pray? Jesus' words, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. How are we going to be sanctified? The word at work in us, God's word. It's it's always the word. It's through the spirit. It's God's word. Think about Hebrews 4 verse 12. The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. What else could you say that about? Only God's word. 
Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation for all those who believe. Isaiah 55 verse 11, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. The word of God is, it's alive. It works. Always doing what God wants it to accomplish. Uh, Martin Luther famously attributed so much of the effect of the, and the success of the Reformation um, to this exact thing, the living word of God. Let me read what he said here, he wrote. He said, this is Martin Luther, I will preach, speak, write, but I will force no one, for faith must be voluntary. Take me as an example. I stood up against the Pope, indulgences, and all papists, but without violence or uproar. I only urged, preached, and declared God's word, nothing else. And yet while I was asleep or drinking Wittenberg beer with my Philip Melanchthon and Amsdorf, the word inflicted greater injury on popery than prince or emperor ever did. I did nothing. The word did everything. He continues, he says, Do you know what, what the devil thinks when he sees men use violence to propagate the gospel? He sits with folded arms behind the fire of hell and says with malignant looks and frightful grin, Ah, how wise these madmen are to play my game. Let them go on. I shall reap the benefit. I delight in it. But when he sees the word running and contending alone on the battlefield, then he shudders and shakes for fear. The word is mighty and takes captive the hearts. Isn't that good? Because it's the word of God at work in a church. And that's why we want almost everything that happens here to be basically about the word of God. So that our gatherings would just basically, let's sing the word of God, let's pray the word of God. Let's read the Word of God. Let's preach the Word of God. Let's see the Word of God in the sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper. And if we do things throughout the week, let's make them about the Word of God. In our gospel communities, in our equip on Thursday nights, let's, let's study the Word of God. And equip on Sunday mornings, we'll study the Word of God in the youth group and all the, in the kids' ministry. And it's all just the Word of God. I remember being in a, um, a meeting with William Taylor, who's a, a pastor in, in London. Uh, an Anglican pastor in London and he was, he was visiting Melbourne and I was in a group of pastors and he was asked something about, because they have quite an influential church that, that, um, amongst particularly uni-age students and things like that. And, and, and people asked him, well, what's your philosophy of ministry? And I just, I'll never forget it because he said this. He said, here's what our philosophy of ministry is. Teach the Bible. And it's like, you just ask us, ask me what we're doing here. And I was like, that's about teaching the Bible. Yeah, but what about that program? That's about teaching the Bible. Right? One-to-ones, it's teaching the Bible. Counseling, it's teaching the Bible. Discipleship, it's teaching the Bible. We just teach the Bible. That makes perfect sense. If it's actually the word at work in a church to accomplish all the things that we'd want to accomplish, then the main thing is just get it out. So again, I thank God for the reality of that that we kind of, I think, experience here. It's wonderful. It's wonderful to see more and more of us as we all grow in, in, in conforming our lives to the Word of God together um, and seeing us just turn from sin, prioritizing the things that God's Word wants us to prioritize. That is a huge encouragement and a huge blessing. So that was the second thing. Third one. Third thing to give thanks for. Third, giving thanks to God for how well the church is suffering. Verse 14. For you, brothers became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews. So notice he begins with the word for or because. So he's connecting the word of God is at work in you. I can see that. And here's how. It's actually the way you suffer. You're imitating churches who are suffering. They suffer from their countrymen. You suffer from your countrymen. 
So they have become, notice he says, imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. And, and I just wanted to pause and kind of meditate on this for just a second because I think it's, it's a good thing to imitate churches of God. It's actually a really, really good thing to imitate. Um, it, that, that gets um, downplayed a lot nowadays and it's not that trendy and not that cool to think, oh, we're just going to do what other churches are doing. But if we find churches that he describes as churches of God in Christ Jesus, that is to say, I take them to be churches who come under the Lord, revere the Lord. They are, in a sense, under the chief shepherd and they are ordered under God's word. When we find churches like that now or in all of history, we want to imitate that. That makes sense. We are not the first ones to do this. Right? That's why we want to have, we have a pretty old statement of faith together. We're not the first ones to think of a statement of faith. Let's use one that's a couple hundred years old at least. Right? We, we say together a confession regularly, the Nicene Creed. That was from the 300s. Now, I can't do the maths off the top of my head, but that, that's a long time ago, right? That's, that's over a thousand years, I can tell you that much. Right? That's old. What are we doing? We're imitating. We're receiving, actually, tradition. It's a wonderful thing. Um, I remember, uh, it was around like 2014, I think it was, when we were planning to plant a church and planning to plant a church in Melbourne. And it did eventually get planted. And, but in the lead up, I was reading all kinds of church planting material, all that I could get my hands on, books. I even did a subject at Bible college on church planting. And, and I'll tell you, the, the main, what was very, very common in all the books was, it was not this. It was... Now, what you need to do as you plan your church is figure out how you're going to do it, right? Reimagine, re-envision, and come up with church for the particular people that you might want to be reaching. Like, that might just be, like, and be specific. Like, some of them were outrageously specific. It was like, are you trying to reach basketball players? Make a basketball church. You know, it's like, okay, how far do we go with this? I want to reach six foot, above six foot point guards who play basketball that's where we're going to make a church, you know, it's like, but it, it kind of got like that. I remember reading one church planter's, a friend prospectus about his church plant, describing what was about his church plant, uh, raising, raising money. And it contained a quote by Jerry Garcia, who played lead guitar for the Grateful Dead. You didn't expect that, did you? Here's the quote. Don't be the best in the world at what you do. Be the only one in the world who does what you do. That might make sense for music, you know, or technology, or business. That is a disaster for the church. Being the only one doing what you're doing? So in what way are the Thessalonians imitating the churches in Judea? It says this, for you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews. So God's word is at work because you're imitating the churches who came before you. And you're imitating them because you're suffering like them. You're receiving it. You're accepting it. That's amazing. I don't think this kind of imitation was something that they were like actively seeking after, you know. Like, they're like, hmm, we'd love to imitate that. You've got like a really thriving ministry over there in Judea of persecution. I think maybe Wednesday nights, let's all get together and run a program. We could call it Equip Persecution, you know. And, and that's what we'll do Wednesday nights. No, they imitated them, I think, by just knowing that this is normal for the church. They accepted it, they received it, and so should all the churches of God, including us. Jesus himself said in Matthew 10, 17, Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in the synagogues. And you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake, to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. He goes on, Brother will deliver brother over to death. And father his child, and children will rise up against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. The early church just did not walk into Christianity and think persecution would be really weird. No, they would, they would walk into Christianity thinking, 
this, right, what we're experiencing right now. That's so weird. 2 Timothy 3.12, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Acts 14.22, Paul goes throughout the cities and this is what he says. It says, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. So I think Paul's doing a similar thing here. He's wanting to strengthen the souls of the Christians in Thessalonica by, by, by saying to them, when you are persecuted, you are in good company. So it is with the churches of God. So it is with the churches in Judea. So it is with you. Actually, he goes on to put him in even better company than even the churches in Judea. What does he say next about the persecution that has come from the Jews? Remember, it was mainly Jews who persecuted, um, that came after Paul and Silas when they were in Thessalonica. And he's speaking about Jews who persecuted the fellow Jews in Judea, in those churches. And he continues with what the Jews have, how the Jews have been persecuting. So verse 15 begins saying, the Jews who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets. And that's company. So first they killed the Lord Jesus, the Lord Jesus. Now, of course, it was Romans who nailed his hands and his feet to the cross. But it was his own people who schemed for it, planned for it, would not relent until it happened and screamed, crucify him, crucify him. That was his own people. So then if they, the Thessalonians, I think, even if, Paul's saying, even if you get killed, you're not actually then imitating the churches in Judea, you'll be imitating the Lord Jesus himself. And it was Jesus who said in Matthew 10, 24, a disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. And if they've called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? Then notice also they killed the prophets. Now again, listen to Jesus. Matthew 23, 29. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Thus you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your fathers, you serpents, you brood of vipers. How are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town. Do you see what Jesus did? He just lumped the, that, that day, scribes and Pharisees, with what the scribes and Pharisees like had done in all the history of Israel. He said, you're just like them. That's pointing backwards. He also points forwards and says, and there are more prophets coming, and I'm sending more, people of God, missionaries, people who will declare the word of God, and you're going to do the same thing to them. You will kill them, you will crucify them, and you're going to flog them. Jesus lamented, didn't he? These are such moving words. Luke 13, 34. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. That city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you would not. Next, Paul says, notice what else? Killed Jesus, killing the prophets and drove us out, which they, they just know from experience that happened in Thessalonica. They were driven out. Paul says next, and displease God. Of course they do. They oppose everything that he does. They oppose everyone that he sends. He is displeased. And finally he says this. And they oppose all mankind. What a thing to say. You oppose all of mankind. How? Verse 16. 
this is how by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved you see they, they need to be saved they need to have faith in the Lord Jesus and faith comes from hearing hearing must means I need to preach but you're stopping us from preaching so you can illustrate this easily can't you you can imagine a um, that that's uh, a bunch of doctors have the medicine that a particular tribe needs and they're dying from a preventable disease and they have the medicine for them and they want to bring it to that tribe and they're on their way and people come, a government or a group of people come and, and stop them. We, we know that, yeah, well, okay, they're opposing the doctors, but they're also opposing the people who need the medicine in order to live. And Paul's saying, it's the same thing. You're not just opposing us. You're not just opposing us who are wanting to preach the gospel. You realize you're opposing the people we want to preach to who need to hear the word of God in order to be saved. There are consequences for this. Great, grave consequences. Paul writes what they're really doing. Notice what he says, what they're really doing in all of these things. He says, so as always to fill up the measure of of their sins. See, they think they know what they're doing. They probably think they're winning. We killed Jesus, we killed the prophets, we're driving people out of town. Paul says, you know what you're really doing is you are filling up the measure of your sins. And all of that will one day reach its climax. That that bucket that's getting filled of their sins will reach to fullness and Paul declares what will happen wrath has come upon them at last or you could translate it wrath has come upon them to the uttermost speaking of judgment day when the full venting of God's good and righteous wrath for sin will arrive on them for all that they have done. But notice it reads past tense. Do you notice that? It says, but wrath has come upon them at last. You're like, but judgment day is in the future. How could you say it has come upon them at last? And this is a figure of speech that the Bible often uses to put something in in the aorist tense, like past tense, about something that's future, so that we have utter certainty of it happening. This will happen. As certain as things that have happened, have happened. Paul looks at at, at these persecutors of God's people and he says, I see the wrath of God hanging over you and it will most certainly fall. That's their judgment. Why is he saying that to the Thessalonians? It must be to encourage them, doesn't it? Continue. Their day will come. Justice will prevail. But don't become like them because look at what's, what they're under. What a damning description of a group of people. You can't think of anything more damning than that, could you? Can you imagine? And it actually, actually has led some people to accuse Paul of anti-Semitism. Say, so the way that Paul is speaking about the Jews here, he's clearly anti-Semitic. Well, a couple of thoughts. One, Paul is a Jew. It's helpful to remember that. Second, he's mainly just stating historical facts, isn't he? Well, they did kill Jesus. And they are driving them out of town. They did kill prophets. And he, Paul actually just sounds a lot like Old Testament prophets who used to speak to the people of Israel and bring like covenant lawsuits against them and say, you're guilty. Third, remember, Paul desperately loves his Jewish brothers and sisters. We know that from plenty of places throughout his writings. But listen to Romans 9, where he writes this, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. And he's thinking about his Jewish brothers and sisters who are rejecting the Messiah. Great sorrow, unceasing anguish. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. I would go to hell. I would lose Christ. You know how precious Christ is to Paul. 
I would be cut off from him if, if, if it could save my Jewish brothers and sisters who are rejecting the Messiah. He loves them, obviously. But fourth, remember this. When Paul accuses them of doing these things, do you remember Paul's background? Actually, he did these things. He did them. The Thessalonians know that. And Paul's describing it. I mean, he didn't kill Jesus, but he did persecute Jesus. Jesus tells him that when he introduces himself to Paul on the Damascus Rose. He says, I'm Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Did Paul persecute the, the, the prophets or the, 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 the people of God, the churches? Yeah. He was probably the most famous Jew in all the world for doing that. He was very eager to do that. He says himself in Acts 26, he's giving testimony. He says, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in, listen to these words, and in raging fury against them, I persecuted them to foreign cities. I chased them in a rage of fury. Paul did all these things. He displeased God. He was under the wrath of God. He opposed all mankind. But now everything's different, isn't it, for Paul? Though that was once the case... Well, now his life is the one that's threatened. Now he is persecuted. Now he's the one who's driven out. Now he lives to please God. Now he, 1 Corinthians 9.22, becomes all things to all people that by all means I might save some. He was under the wrath of God. But of course now he is in Christ. And in Christ there is now no, there is now no condemnation. He writes in 1 Timothy 1.13, Though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent, but I received mercy. Because I'd acted ignorantly in unbelief and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I and the foremost, he says. Paul's like, I was, just like, I was just like everyone I just described in this passage. You think it's me, like that was me. I was those things. You can't look down on them. Can we? Can we look down on them? What do you think? Those people who did all those things. We can't. Obviously, the greatest sin that Paul lists is that they killed the Lord Jesus. Well, of course, we weren't there. We didn't kill. We didn't put the nails in. We didn't cry out, crucify him. But it was our sin that put him there. And so we sing words like this, Behold the man upon the cross, my sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed, I hear my mocking voice call out, among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. For our sin, we all stand condemned. We stand under the wrath and the righteous fury of God Almighty for all of our blasphemies and all of our unrighteousness. And judgment day is coming. So how will we stand? Like how will that day, how will we know on that day I'll get mercy and not wrath? We actually need to come back to the first point that Paul thanks God for about the Thess Thessalonians, don't we? The question is, how do you receive the word of God? Do you hear it as the word of God? Or is it just the words of men? so silly, so foolish. You all still believe that? That's silliness. Well, how are you hearing the Word of God this morning? Do you think everything that's been said and sung and everything this morning 
is just the words of men? Or are you receiving it as it is, as it actually is? The words of God. Does it sound like anything else in the world? I think so. Does it sound like the words of men? I can tell you what the words of men sound like. Sounds like this. You just do you. Be yourself. Identity is found within. Or do good and good will come to you. God helps those who just help themselves. You only live once. Live your truth. Or there is no God. How are the words of men working out in the world? As, the, as a whole culture buys into, I define my existence and I find my own, my own meaning and my own identity within myself. And it's just as miserable as all get out. It's not working. But those are the words of men. Okay, compare what I just said, all the self-centeredness of all of that. Compare it with this. Does this sound different? The creator of all the world became a man. And he lived in obscurity. Well, he was born in obscurity to Mary of Nazareth. And he lived a perfect life. And he went to a cross and died the most humiliating of deaths so that he might take on him the sins of the world. So that if we want to be saved, we, the, the, the point is not be you and kind of fix yourself up and you can do anything. It's faith. Just trust him. And he will give you all of his righteousness and he will take all of your sin and you will be cleansed now and forever. Does that sound like the words of men? You could not come up with that. Because only the gospel, only the gospel holds out grace and holds out mercy on account of the works of someone else and not us. All eternity depends on that question, doesn't it? Hey, is the gospel the made-up words of men or is it what it actually is, the words of God? And will you receive it this morning? You can. You can. Let me pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, just as we've, we've already prayed, we pray that that even in this moment, the things that you might want to work in our hearts would not just be gone with the distractions of what's next. But help us truly to consider, am I receiving God's word as the word of God? Let us consider our state before you and have great joy in knowing that you love us that we are yours and you did everything necessary to bring us to yourself. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.